Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Well, spring is just around the corner for us in the Southern Hemisphere. And for those of you that live in the Northern Hemisphere, you will probably have found out that autumn is just around the corner, which means that allergy season, whether you're living in the Southern southern Hemisphere or the Northern Hemisphere, is probably about to hit with a vengeance. And for those of you who suffer from allergies, whether respiratory or any kind of other seasonal allergies, um, this is not a good time of the year. And suddenly the antihistamines come out and all sorts of uh, tissues are lying around the house over the next couple of weeks. So that is the theme of our podcast today. We're going to be talking to a specialist allegory who talks very specifically about the challenges that athletes face when it comes to allergies and also some of the modern treatments that we're going to be dealing with. But before we get on to that, uh, Ross Tucker, as usual, with me here in our studio in Cape Town and some very interesting uh, caught my eyes for us this week, in particular, one Nara Quintana. Yeah, the, tram- the first yeah. ever Tramadol ban. <laughs> Well, not ban, actually, because he could race. First of a tramadol positive, let's call it that. Because I asked you whether it was a ban or a... It was a ban or a disqualification, mm, but it was a it's, disqualification. It's wasn't the it? latter, and the big debate is why is it that and not a ban? Yeah. I lapsed into saying ban myself now because I think most people who are opposed to doping automatically say, well, okay, it's a, it's a substance I took. We know that it's been used in the sports. We know that it potentially has performance-enhancing benefits. That's debatable. We'll talk about that. And so why is he not disqualified and banned like he would be if he failed a test for EPO or testosterone, a growth hormone? And so that's been the big talking point. And a couple of you picked this up on Patreon. Um, Peter Frost was one of you. Uh, Renato Cironi also. So thanks for those. The, the the patrons have been, again, very talkative. And I've had a lot of interaction in the last week or two. So that's been really great. Keep it coming. But yeah, this one, this one, as I mentioned, it's the first time that an athlete has tested positive for Tramadol. It can only happen in cycling which is one of the ways that it's unique. It's always in cycling, isn't um, it? Yeah, and you know, it's funny. I was listening to The Move because they did a preview of the Vuelta mm. and they, they did that on the eve of the race and this came That's up. That's Lance Armstrong and his crew. And it's really interesting for me, like as someone who who's campaigns against doping and my default would be that this is doping. Mm. To listen to them dismiss it as clickbait and a non-story. So you couldn't get two more diametrically opposed viewpoints. Now, I listened to that and I said, pretty interesting, preparing for this. So, this so they're th- saying that the ban is ridiculous. Well, well, not ban. Yeah. They're saying the disqualification. disqualification. So the guy who hosted that, JB, uh, yeah. what's his name? I forget his name now, but JB. he's with Lance. Yeah. He said, oh, he's, he's in the media. So this is, he's, he's you, basically. Yeah. <laughs> he says, I'm in the media and I'll tell you what's happening here is that they want a sensational story. And so it's a clickbait headline. I'm listening to this thinking like, it's a rule violation. There's yes. literally a policy document that the UCI has written. And I want to read to you from that. And as and he always... Was, I mean, he's, he was disqualified. Yes, it's exactly. Not like, it's not That's like not, nothing happened to him. This is not like someone's fabricating. The, yes. I mean, so, so there's literally a document that was released in March um, 
it was it came into effect. This is a document, Part 13 of a UCI regulation, version entering to force 1st of March 2020. And on page 24, they explain this tramadol policy. They, they describe what tramadol is, how the control works. But there's a paragraph here, and it literally says, by requesting a license, any rider agrees to abide and be bound by these rules and explicitly agrees and acknowledges that tramadol is prohibited in competition. In this respect, any rider agrees to submit to an in-competition tramadol control as provided under this chapter. And the way that works is that they actually have a dedicated area at the finish line of every stage, and it's called the Tramadol Control Center. And a rider is notified that they have to go to this, and they provide a finger prick sample. It's not a blood draw and it's not a urine sample. That's also different here. It's a finger prick that gets blotted onto a little piece of paper and that's where they look for the tramadol mm. or its metabolite. So that's also a different, right? And if, if, if they find tramadol or one of its metabolites in that, then you have violated a rule. It's a policy violation. So you can't call it a clickbait thing and say Quintana's not guilty of anything. Now, <laughs> he, he might he might well challenge the protocol, the policy, mm. the, 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 the blood dot method, mm, which he the has. chain of custody, yeah. the procedural stuff, right? The thing is, he's failed it twice in the same race, right? Mm. The one was on the 8th of July and the other one's the 13th, mm. five days apart. The half-life of tramadol is short enough that that can't be the same ingestion. <laughs> it's not mm. like two days where you could argue it was, I took it once. Or didn't take it once. He has to prove that he didn't take it twice. <laughs> Can you just take a step back? What, what is tramadol? So tramadol is an opioid painkiller. Um, right. Many of you listening to this have probably taken it at some stage. Certainly um, Peter and Renato mentioned that they'd used it. And it's it's sold under different brand names, but they test for the, the molecule that is contained within tramadol. And it's a controversial drug because since 2012, so now we go back a decade, it's been on what WADA call the monitoring list. So it's a, it's a substance that they're aware of with the potential for abuse and doping, but doesn't qualify to make it onto the banned list. And so instead they monitor it. Meldonium, you may recall, Sharapova's drug, that was on the monitoring list for a long time. Then they put it on the banned list. Nicotine, caffeine, is also on that list. So mm. tramadol has been on that list for a decade and various bodies have tried to persuade WADA to move it onto the banned list. I'm looking here at a, at a, a website from the US Anti-Doping Agency that was published in February 2017, so five and a half years ago. Headline, Tramadol, Why Some Athletes and Anti-Doping Experts Want It Banned. And they talk about how it's a still legal substance that is powerful and dangerous. And USADA, alongside numerous other organizations in sport, believe that the time is now for WADA to finally move the drug from its monitoring program, where it's been since 2012, to the prohibited list alongside 12 other narcotics that are already banned in competition. Now, when you go to the banned substance list, you will find a section S7 for banned narcotics. <laughs> and they include drugs you may know, diamorphine, which is heroin, fentanyl, very powerful mm. drug that's killed a lot of celebrities, you may know it from that reason methadone morphine oxycodone oxymorphone so these these substances are already banned and different bodies have said well tramadol needs to be on that list so it's a it's a heavy painkiller it's a pretty strong painkiller i mean i remember getting it once and, and i was at the hospital and they said to me <laughs> they said if you take this now you spend the night you don't drive or someone fetches you wow 
So they wouldn't let me get in the car and drive myself home if I took it because the side effects are thought to be dizziness, drowsiness, mm. lack of coordination, concentration, and so forth. Which so it's is not, not just taking a couple of you know, the old, <laughs> you know the old warning, mm. do not operate heavy machinery? <laughs> That's the yeah. tramadol thing. So it's not a couple of aspirins, basically? No, it's not. So it's no. a, in, in South Africa, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but it's an S5 drug, it's a Schedule 5 painkiller, which is right up there. I mean, this is prescription-only stuff. And it's been, as I say, it's been on the radar for quite a long time. Now... It's in in 2017. Also, at the time that USADA was lobbying, the Director General of WADA, Oliver Nigley, said the following: "We have a committee of experts. We have a process for putting out the list every year, which is determined by experts. They discussed it, tramadol, at length, and their conclusion was it didn't meet the criteria to be put on the list. We have a process for the list. We have the relevant knowledge, and we have to rely on our experts and their conclusions." So. For whatever reason, they've decided that it doesn't qualify to move from monitoring into banned. Now, that's contentious. Mm. But the UCI, driven in part by data, have decided that it is worth putting on their list. And the reason I think it's they've done that is because in the monitoring, obviously what WAD is doing is they're testing samples at various different events. Not always, but they're often testing samples. They're looking for tramadol. And between 2012 and 2015, 75% roughly of all tramadol positives in sport were coming from cycling. Mm. So they're saying, well, this painkiller has the potential for abuse and the specific sport in which it's being used the most based mm. on our data is cycling. So, and, 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 and just, I mean, I'm just guessing here, but I imagine that if you're taking this substance, things like uh, the pain that you'd feel riding up a climb, for instance, any right. kind of pain, or even if you're suffering from back pain from three weeks in the saddle kind of thing, it would no. reduce the effects of things like that. Now, that's where this expert group that Oliver Negley talks about is mm. probably having most of their discussions. Because, you know, f first first reaction is, well, okay, it's a painkiller. It numbs pain. Pain is limiting to performance. Mm. I mean, we all know whether you're a Tour de France podium contender or a hacker like we are, pain on a climb slows you down. <laughs> yeah. You slow down because you're in pain. So in theory, the removal of pain is performance enhancing. Mm. In practice, studies haven't found that conclusively yet, but we'll get onto that in a moment. But I think that those experts from anti-doping are saying, right, well, here's a drug. Yes, it's a painkiller. Yes, it has side effects. It's regulated as medicine. And we're going to trust the doctors to regulate its use in cyclists. In other words, not give it unnecessarily. Because at the moment, we either don't think the performance-enhancing benefits are large enough or the harms are large enough to justify putting it on the banned list. Because, and we discussed this, what was it, three or four podcasts back, mm. the whole ethics of doping. And the whole Rafa Nadal story. Right. Yeah. Now, to me, if I'm a cyclist and I use tramadol to dull the pain of cycling, that is unequivocally doping. <laughs> because I didn't need it for any reason other than the fact that I'm about to in induce pain through sport, and I'm going to try and switch that off. Mm. Would you agree? I mean, my intent is performance enhancement using a drug. Yes. It's doping. Unless he would justify it by saying, as we've heard in the past with the Nadal story, was there, there, was, some, there was some bodily pain that needed to be treated right. by it. So in other words, if Quintana was so, suffering from back pain, he might say, well, I needed it for back pain. And that's where, and that's where so, so John Pike, who's a sports ethicist that we've worked with a little bit on World Rugby, has written a piece in which he would probably make the distinction that if that's the reason and you use it, it's not doping. 
But if you used it in the absence of clinical pain, mm. for for want of a better word, sports pain, that qualifies as doping. So now, okay, now we're having a theoretical discussion mm. about tramadol, which is probably important. But there is a line there. But there's a that's the point. There's a line, and it's yeah. not it's not a line that's understood by people in the sport. It's a line that's literally written in black and white. Mm. So so when a cyclist applies for a license, he agrees to these terms. Mm. And so if, if, if that substance is in your urine, or not in your urine, in your little finger prick blood mm. spot, mm. then it's not clickbait. It's not a nothing story. It's no. not a made up controversy. It's a violation, but not a doping violation. But Quintana, if he'd so, taken the substance knowingly, knows full well that if, he's risking being caught. If, if yeah, he must do. He's either negligent and he doesn't know this policy. Right. Or he's doing it knowing it. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's he's denying it, right? So I suppose we've got to put that in there. So he's got to explain how it got into his yeah. blood twice. twice. <laughs> but the, so, so now the next thing is some people say, well, it's just semantics. It's doping. Well, by wording, it's not doping because it's a policy violation, not a doping violation. Mm. Because the UCI, and I actually think they've been criticized here, people saying, oh, they make it difficult for themselves. I think this is actually good of them to do. If they're if they're aware that there's a prescription painkiller problem in the sport, they should be taking steps to try and clamp down on it. You know, it's it's happened before. It's mm. happened with the intravenous injections, fluids, and so on. Mm. Mm. But the thing about this, where people have to understand like sports governance, is that WADA exists in part to protect sports bodies from the litigation that arises out of these tests, mm. positive tests. If you go back to the 1990s, Butch Reynolds was a 400-meter uh, runner from the U.S., and he failed the drugs test. And, and that his, his legal challenge to that against U.S. anti-doping was part of what created WADA because everyone recognized this, almost the safety in numbers mm-hmm. that WADA would create. So sports bodies are very reluctant to list as doping substances that WADA doesn't list. They, they want to... They want to hide under the umbrella of WADA, mm. if that makes sense. Right, yeah. So when the UCI recognized this issue, they wanted it banned, and we see this from US anti-doping as well. WADA has said no. So the UCI said, well, fine, we're not going to call it doping, but we're still going to ban it in competition. That's that's how they've created this. In a sense, it's like a reverse loophole. <laughs> they've mm. tightened a loophole only in mm. cycling. Mm. So again, no one else could fail this test in tramadol except a cyclist. And now people can argue about whether that's unnecessary, necessary, or not controversial, or whatever. But that's that's how we've gotten to the situation. And, it, and you said right at the start, this is the first tramadol that disqualification I that I've mm. yeah that, that I've, mm. I've heard of. Yeah, mm. I mean, it's quite a rare thing because it's unusual. So you can imagine that's why it's creating so much controversy. And I've yeah. seen stories about him. He's gone back. He's not doing the Vuelta. Yeah. He's and it's going a name, right? I mean, this is a Grand Tour winner. Oh, yeah. It's one, mean, of the great cyclists one of the great cyclists of the last 15 of the last, years yeah, or whatever. Exactly. Sixth in the Tour, I think he was. Yeah. Um, and just again, referring back to that policy, in light of the foregoing, which is to say the risk of dependence and addiction, commonly reported adverse side effects are dizziness, drowsiness, loss of attention, which are incompatible with cycling and endanger other competitors. Fair enough. In order to protect each rider's health and physical integrity, tramadol is prohibited in competition. But now, again, they couldn't take the big step of banning it as doping. So they banned it as a policy violation, effectively, with its own regulation. And that's why, for a first offense, it's disqualification and a fine. So I think it was 5,000 Swiss francs that Quintana pays. 
uh, disqualification and he pays the costs for the tramadol control, which I imagine mm. are fairly small. A multiple violation, and incidentally, he's lucky they don't treat two in the same race <laughs> as multiple violations because mm. it's clearly two different samples. Um, causes disqualification, five months suspension, and then a third infringement is nine months. So eventually you do get suspensions. But again, they're not they're not traditional doping violation suspensions. They're they're policy mm. medical regulation violations instead. And that's yeah, you I mean, yeah, for all the criticism of the UCI, I, I would back them on this. Mm. Um It's one of those things know. where it's defining what doping is, isn't it? Because mm. doping we we always assume is what 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 defines performance enhancing? I guess, yeah, yeah. and it's hard to. I always think the doping is kind of almost like a, a slang term for all these wide range of things. But this isn't doping; it's medical assistance. Yes, it? and I mean, it's, it's, and and if yeah, so I mean, I don't know whether you can get a TUE for tramadol. Let's say mm. you do have back pain. Could Which you apply is a therapeutic for use exemption? Could you yes. apply for a therapeutic use exemption? Use it. Have it come up in your blood spot test, but be cleared on the basis of the TUE. If so, mm. then a cyclist really has no excuse because then even if he's got a legitimate source of what I'm calling clinical pain, mm-hmm. he's still used it off-label without declaring it for that thing that it should have been used for in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. To me, again, if I'm if I'm taking a substance to block something that inhibits performance, i.e. sports pain, then that qualifies in my mind as intentional doping. Yeah. And I believe, and, and we've, we've seen testimony, by the way, Michael Barry used to ride for USPS, I think it was Team Sky, I forget now. And so it was Jonathan Ten and Locke was Sky. Michael Barry was US Postal. And there was also a Dutch cyclist whose name I, I now forget. I'll post a link in the show notes, apologies. They all report how this used to be commonly handed out in the race. On the bus, before the stage, in the last sort of 20, 30 Ks, it was part of the old finishing bottle mm. because that's when you know that you're going to need to access every reserve you have Pain stops you from accessing reserves, so therefore the finishing bottle needed to have painkillers. And that that Dutch cycle, Liu Venstrath, I forget, sorry, my name memory is poor. He spoke about the idea that it's legal and it improves performance, so of course I'm using it. Mm. Every cyclist would do the same thing. Yes, because if it's legal, you're going to push the limits of what you can take. Exactly, exactly. Now, on the study side of things, there are four studies that I'm aware of, and there's there's an article in a journal called Frontiers in Pharmacology, written by Thomas Zandonai and some colleagues from Spain, in which they discuss tramadol, including its prevalence and where it's been used and what it does. And they describe four studies. Now, one of those studies found a 5% improvement in performance over a 20-minute time trial. Um, the other three studies found no benefit. And the moment you add, and it's interesting, they add cognitive challenges to exercise, any physical benefit goes away, <laughs> which is an interesting model. So I suppose one could argue that there's no evidence that it should be banned. Mm. But in my mind, if I'm especially in a grand tour where the cumulative effects of hard efforts creates pain, mm. you know, you wake up on the 10th, 11th, 12th day of a Tour de France, I would imagine, <laughs> with significant muscle soreness and weakness and aches and pains. Mm. Removing those is theoretically performance enhancing. And so I don't think a drug would persist in the peloton if it wasn't beneficial for them. And I guess anything, I mean, this is what makes it interesting because if you say that any kind of pain medication is therefore feasible, that's what I find very confusing about this whole story is that they're saying you can't take pain medication. In other words, 
can you take no pain medication at all? And if you can, to what extent can you? In other words, could you take a disparin? Could you take a... Well, yes, those are, those are allowed because they're... Paracetamol, you are, you can take those. Yeah, because they're just not powerful yeah. enough to... Yeah. So, but yeah, this is the, this is the gray line, mm-hmm. which at some point becomes a black line and then o- over which you enter into doping. Mm-hmm. And the question is, what, where do we put that line? And tramadol sounds like it's getting closer and closer to that black line. Yeah, and the UCI has drawn a line further along than the water is prepared to. Yeah. And that's what's causing the confusion among yeah. some people yeah. about this. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> it would be really fascinating to be in those meetings and listen to why WADA is rejecting, not applications, but lobbying by UCI, USADA, is that movement um, MPCC for credible cycling. They've yeah. been big vocal advocates for tramadol ban in the sport. And WADA must have their reasons for not wanting to do it. One of them probably is what we discussed a couple of weeks back, where if you put all these substances on the banned list, you're effectively denying athletes what a non-athlete would have regular access to for necessary reasons. Mm. And so that's the that's the problem. I mean, it's going to be fascinating to hear what he takes to the court. Yeah. Because one sample procedurally okay fine but you've got to show that they made similar mistakes twice <laughs> chain of custody or whatever it is i mean you can't yeah i suppose you could argue for inge- in accidental ingestion yeah but inadvertent doping i suppose i don't know it's just going to be really interesting to hear what comes out of that so yeah interesting no doubt Right, so we'll see how that rolls out. I must be honest, I'm quite uh, sad to see Nairo Quintana being cuffed for this because he's one of the great sort of heroes of the Tour de France over the last few years, always puts in a very brave performance on all the climbs. And you always think that he's one of those riders who gives it absolutely everything on the course. And he had a, quite a good tour this year. So it's, yeah. it's kind of sad that if he's being disqualified. Mm-hmm. You know? one, one last thought, actually. There's another paper I found. Um, it comes out of Italy. It was published in 2014. It's a little bit older now. It's called Dietary Supplements and Drug Use and Doping Knowledge in Italian Young Elite Cyclists. And so what they did here was they took 40 elite youth cyclists, so aged between 19 and 23, so sort of in that age category. And they asked them about their attitudes and perceptions and knowledge of supplements. And what was interesting is that they overwhelmingly identified tramadol as doping. Mm. Even that's not. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the cyclists themselves felt that it was doping. And then funnily enough, they failed to recognize certain other substances that are doping as doping. So, yeah. okay, so there's a bit of a knowledge gap in both directions. And then the last word on this is that um, it says here, participants deemed doping prevalence high among cyclists in general, but not in their own team. <laughs> which is which I read and, and they even they even have a p value here for significance and it's less than 0.0001 so it's highly significant that these sub these elite youth cyclists think that lots of doping happens but not our guys yes which is a classic human condition uh, where everyone dopes except us yes and exactly. uh, but anyway that's must study, be a psychological term for that there's got to be some sort of dissonance <laughs> thing going on there but anyway the point was that the cyclists themselves think that tramadol is doping, yeah. even though it isn't. Yeah. Although, remember, this was 2014. It wasn't even named by UCI yet as a prohibited in competition. So mm. I, I don't know. I, it'd be interesting to see if by 2023, you know, next year this time, there's been any movements on tramadol, whether, yeah. whether one case for a big name pushes it over or perhaps actually makes it less likely to go on because everyone says, hang on. 
too too grey, mm. too un, too ethically dubious. Mm. Uh, who knows? Well, according to the story on uh, I think it's on Cycling News today, um, it's talking about his lawyer and Nara Quintana's lawyer saying that they described the UCI's tramadol systems as very strange and called on the UCI's rules and processes into question. That's obviously what they're focusing yeah, yeah, on. No, what, what is, I don't know what that means. It I must mean, be the processes in which they are taking those samples, I'd, I'd imagine. I mean, you know, this blood spot method, I remember, because part of the work I do with World Rugby on the scientific committee is to look at proposals. And we, we got a proposal from some researchers who wanted to study this blood spot method in rugby. And in the end, I don't know, I don't believe it was funded um, for various other reasons, but it was clearly coming along as a new cost-effective way of doing sampling because you could test a lot of people for the same cost that you would normally test one person. Yeah. And maybe the fact that it's novel in that way is what's going to be questioned here. I don't know. But um, yeah. pharma- pharmacologically, analytically, I don't believe there's a problem with the spot method. I suppose the... You know, one one interesting issue is, you know, normally a urine or a blood sample, you can request a second analysis of the B sample. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they do two samples at a time with a finger, finger prick one. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole blood spot method and there's a whole tramadol issue that needs to probably be discussed. So it will be interesting. We'll probably be revisiting this at some point in the yeah. future. Well, we'll keep a close eye on that. And I'm sure if all of those who are involved in that uh, side of cycling will be interested to see all the updates coming from his team and his lawyers because it looks like Nairo Quintana will be fighting this case. Anyway, so let's move on to our topic of the day and uh, very happy to welcome Professor Claudia Gray, who is a specialist allergologist and pediatrician from the University of Cape Town and the Kids Allergy Centre at the Vincent Pilotti here in Cape Town. She was also one of the founding directors of the Allergy Foundation of South Africa, and she's also a fellow of the American Academy of Allergy and Clinical Immunology and a member of the European Academy of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Immunology? Immunology. <laughs> Immunology, there we go. <laughs> Got to be careful what I say there. So, I mean, Claudia was fascinating. We brought her into the discussion today because we wanted to find out, first of all, about the prevalence of allergies amongst sports people, and we're talking mm. particularly around sports, what the latest updates in terms of treatments were, and whether some of the allergies that we all suffer from to some extent are both treatable in the long term and if the current methodologies of treating those things is is the same as it always has been. There was quite a lot of interesting stuff that I didn't know came out of this conversation. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I feel like we knew this a little bit before, but we've quantified it in our interview there, is that if you don't suffer from some kind of airway issue at some point in the year, you're probably in the minority. Yeah. You know, and that's not to say we, if more than half of us have asthma. That's the most common one people think of when they think about breathing issues and respiratory issues. But lower airway dysfunction is one of many different conditions and allergies and so forth, pollens and so on. And uh, they're, they're so common. Mm. Yet, I mean, I certainly haven't ever really thought about understanding whether I have one. <laughs> Maybe I just accept that I can't breathe because I think I'm less fit than I am. Mm. Who knows? Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting to then pick the brains of someone who understands this and can explain it. And hopefully when people hear this, they'll either understand what, they experience or will be able to explore some new things that they hadn't considered before. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. So very, very interesting. Here is uh, Dr. Claudia Gray. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Right, so welcome to Dr. Claudia Gray, who is uh, visiting us from all the way up the road, actually, because uh, she works very close to us here to our podcasting centre. Claudia, welcome. And and this is a subject which uh, which has kind of come via the via, because you and I have a mutual friend and a guy called Charlie Wright, who runs a business called Clean My Bed, uh, which deals with taking out dust mites out of beds and that kind of thing. And he suggested we chat to you a little bit about, particularly on the allergy side. Now, being a podcast about sport, we're obviously very interested in the, on the on the sports side. Looking at your expertise in this area, the the big question is: Is allergies more prevalent in athletes than it is in the normal population? Do we know? Thanks, Mike. Yeah, that's a very interesting question to start with. And I think we first of all have to define what an allergy is. And an allergy really is an exaggerated response to something which should normally be tolerated. So for example, if you have an allergy to something like dust mite, most people should tolerate that. But if you don't, you can get an allergic nose or even a hyperreactive chest. So an allergy is something that really shouldn't be there, but is there in some people because their immune response is, is overactive. So not... so. We're not all allergic to this. In other words, if you're allergic to dust mites, I might not necessarily be, and and all all the allergens that are out there, not everybody's allergic to the same allergens. Hundred percent. So uh, you know, every single person would have a, a unique allergy profile. And when we talk about allergies, I think a lot of people think about sniffly, sneezy noses, and and maybe asthma, but it's 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 a lot more than that in the scope. Uh, we focus a lot in athletes on airway diseases because they can impact the performance of athletes. But remember, there are other allergies too. So some people have full blown anaphylaxis to exercise. So when they exercise, they can actually swell up and get rashes and shortness of breath. Some well, people why, have. Why does that happen? I mean, that is a that sort of reaction is kind of saying, well, exercise is bad for you in that situation. Isn't yeah, it? this is very rare. So I'm just trying to elaborate the scope of allergies mm. that it's not just snotty noses and and wheezy chest. So you can actually have full blown anaphylaxis. It's a oh. rare phenomenon, but we see it, um, and that can be managed. Allergies can also include food allergies. Some people have the combination of eating certain foods and exercise. That combination triggers them off. Some people have a skin allergy like a dermatitis and that could affect a sports person for example with certain grips of tennis rackets or golf clubs or pole vaults etc. Some people get what we call hives or urticaria and this can be in response to heat or sweating so that could really affect some athletes and then you get your sort of ancillary allergies as well which I see a lot of but you may not always think about like a bee sting anaphylaxis. And I see that a lot in cricket players, for example. So I have a whole clinic of 13, 14, 15-year-old boys who come for their bee desensitization, and they're mostly avid um, cricket players. So the spectrum of allergies is large before we even go into the, the prevalence. And when we're talking about prevalence, I think we're mainly talking about things like airway disease. So lower airway dysfunction or hyperreactive airway in response to exercise or exacerbated by ex- uh, by exercise. And Mike, yes, it is higher in um, in the sports people, especially those sort of supreme athletes and long distance or endurance sports people. So if you take the general population of South Africa, for example, you'll probably find that 
10 to 12 percent of people have asthma. In sports people, um, statistics which have sort of been brought out by Olympic committees, you'll see that in endurance athletes, this is 20 to 25 percent. So one in five, one in four people have a reactive chest, uh, which can really impact on their exercise. Um, It's even higher in winter sports people because cold air is an additional trigger for mm. a reactive airway. So your skiers, uh, etc. And even the highest is in aquatic athletes. So swimmers, water polo players, rowers, they seem to have the highest prevalence of a reactive airway up to 40%. It's kind of counterintuitive because when you think about sports people, you think about them being healthier than the average population, than the normal population. So you know, if, you, if you've got, I mean, we talk a lot about asthma in cycling, for instance, because there's an overuse of TUEs and we know about the Chris Froome story being that he's always suffered from asthma. But <laughs> Ross and I have often discussed this, is that <laughs> this prevalence of these allergies seems against what you would expect. Because if you're going to get to the top level of a sport and you've got an allergy that prevents you being good at it, how do you get to that top level of a sport? Is it is it just because they come through the system because they are sporty and therefore that's why they present more than their general population who might not necessarily Mm. have access to the medical facilities that are person that's fit has. Yeah. I mean, you make a good point how they come through the system. So someone with absolutely severe allergies, so life-threatening asthma or exercise-induced anaphylaxis probably won't make it through the system. Mm. That's the bottom line. But in those who are fit and healthy and maybe have a a small degree of of asthma, sometimes the sort of elite sports level can exacerbate that. And and there's some interesting reasons for it. Um, So an endurance athlete, for example, a runner. So they spend hours and hours and hours on the breathing in pollutants, breathing in allergens, breathing in cold air, humid air. So the exposure Mm. is just greater. And then there's another very interesting reason. And that's because a lot of athletes, I mean, when, when we all go for a run, certainly after 100 meters, I'm going, (gasps) and the mouth opens and the Mm. nose doesn't function anymore as our breathing apparatus. So when we mouth breathe, we actually bypass a very, very important part of our airway regulator. That's the nose. The nose is an air conditioner. The nose is a a humidifier. The nose traps irritants and pollutants and, and allergens. And it warms the air and it makes it suitable to go to the chest, which is more fragile. Mm. But when you uh, uh, really are doing endurance sport or high intensity sport, you breathe through your mouth. So the allergens, pollutants, cold air, etc. go straight to your chest and that can cause your chest to be more twitchy. So I think there's there's several reasons for it. But as you say, if you are severely debilitated by allergies, you're not going to get to the top. But these are the people with milder allergies, which maybe are exacerbated when you are at the top. Mm. I mean, mm. it's kind of design flaw, Ross, isn't it? <laughs> the big guy upstairs got that wrong because he said, well, when you exercise, which should be a healthy pursuit, <laughs> in effect, you're you're putting yourself at risk of uh, some sort of reaction. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that from an evolutionary point of view. Yeah. But, but it's it, the thing about it is it doesn't affect performance enough to filter it out, right? And so it doesn't have any, any impact on survival because – the other people in your clan or tribe would have done the hunting. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. do you think do you think the prevalence in the general population is underestimated for the same reason that athletes are more likely to know about it? Is that a lot of people who mm. don't exercise may have it and never discover that? Um, 
it's 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 possible because certainly exercise itself is a trigger for for asthma or hyperactive airways. So maybe some people just don't exercise enough to know mm. about it. But I truly believe that elite athletes do have a higher prevalence mm. for the reasons that we've described. And that doesn't mean to say it's not well managed because, of mm. course, management is key. Does a does an asthmatic athlete? How how often would they experience the condition when they exercise? Every time, yeah. or do you get instances where it's one every ten sessions? Perhaps it's one month a year because of the allergens in the air that month. I mean, what what is the how does it present? Is basically what I'm getting. Yeah, at. so that varies from athlete to athlete, and it varies according to your control. So in theory, mm. if you're well controlled and you go to a good physician or an allergist and you have a good controller, then you shouldn't really get um, affected that badly when you are on your medication. But you you mentioned that certain triggers may make it worse for certain people, and that's absolutely right. Mm. So I have a whole group of of young men I, uh, in my practice. Essentially, I'm a pediatric allergist. But I have a whole group who in winter come to me with a tight chest and Mm. I've named it winter asthma, rugby asthma, (laughs) because they're generally the rugby players who play in the cold weather and have short, sharp bursts of exercise. Mm. So often the cold is a trigger. Mm. Um, uh, Other triggers are, as you say, your particular allergen. So if it's grass pollen season and you're very allergic to pollen, that could be your worst time of the year. Um, Interestingly, with exercise and, and reactive airways and immune response, some ancillary factors can also play a role. For example, in women, the time of the month, if you're menstruating, you're more likely to be reactive. Um, Some people need to eat certain foods to be reactive, like wheat. Some people, if there's a lot of pollution around, they will get triggered. So this will vary Mm. from athlete to athlete according to what their main risk factors are. What is the trigger for the aquatic sports having the highest prevalence? That's a good question. (laughs) Because I understand the winter sports because I grew up near Johannesburg where it's considerably colder than Cape Town and warmer than many places you are listening to this. But... um, (laughs) The, the, I, I don't understand the aquatics because somewhere deep in the recesses of my brain when I was doing honors, I remember being told that for asthmatics, swimming is recommended as quite a good form of exercise because of the rhythmical breathing. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I will have to put my hand up and say I'm not 100% sure of all the reasons, but this is the, the re- reading I've done. But I would imagine that part of it is actually the chlorine as an irritant, um, especially in big pools, etc., where the, lots of people are swimming, they're obviously quite high mm. chlorine levels. And that's a strong irritant of the airway, uh, which in addition to, to possibly the, the sudden onset of cold as you jump into the water, that is uh, another trigger. Mm. But on the other hand, when we talk about lung functions and stuff, you'll find that the aquatics <laughs> have mm. the highest lung function yeah. as well. Yeah. So it's obviously good for so, the chest so as just, well. So just on that, and before I get on mm. to the next question, just, just in support of what you've said, your stats were almost perfect. There's a paper came out at the beginning of this year called Prevalence of Lower Airway Dysfunction in Athletes. That's the first part. And it is a systematic review. So what they do there is they look at all the published literature, they choose the best studies, and then they combine them into one big finding. And... The prevalence in winter sports is 39.9%. Sorry, aquatic sports, 39.9%. Winter sports, 295 And elite endurance athletes, 25.1%. So that is, that is the case. Now, if I'm a swimmer and I'm triggered by the chlorine or getting into the water, how do I ever test it on the land to confirm that I have it? Because it's, it's presumably I come to your offices now, your clinic, and I say, I can't breathe. How do you simulate that if that's my trigger and I don't have it now with you? 
Yeah, so, uh, yeah. as in all medicine, um, you, you have to take a very thorough history. Mm. And I always say that's your best test is always your history and examination. So you might find that there is some background evidence of airway hyperreactivity if you do lung function tests, etc. Um, and then you take the history. So you're not going to challenge a patient. In the olden days, we used to use something called a metacholine challenge test, which is similar to chlorine. It's an airway irritant, but you're mm. not going to do that. So this is more of um, just taking a really, really good history and maybe having some background evidence of some background asthma with a lung function test, with a peak flow. But a lot of it is based on history. Mm. And we know, and the, the history is normally very clear. The patient says, no, I'm normally fine. I'm fine if I go for a gentle run, but if I go for a hard cross-country run, I get a little bit mm. tight. Gosh, and when I play water polo, I get tight all the time. So we get that scenario a lot, the short, sharp bursts of exercise in highly chlorinated mm. water. Okay. Because I've always read and seen in sports, especially they talk about a test, and it's yeah. the FEV1 that is primarily used for the diagnosis. But you're saying that actually a doctor can diagnose asthma without that test because history might tell more. History tells a lot. Mm. In theory, for asthma, you do a lung function test to confirm it. Mm -hmm. And there are various parameters in a lung function test. Mm. So you've got your lung capacity. You've got your vital capacity. You've got your FEV1, which is your forced expiratory volume in one second. So all those things can help. But the bottom line, as you mentioned, is if someone is particularly triggered by a particular risk mm. factor, such as chlorine, at baseline, the FEV1 may be absolutely normal. Mm. And then you'll have to rely on history as well. Yeah. And what is bronchial provocation, direct bronchial provocation? Because in this paper yeah. I mentioned, and I will, as always, pop these in the show notes, um, they talk about the highest prevalence was observed in studies using direct bronchial provocation. So when you do a lung function test, basically you just, uh, with with just normal air, <laughs> you take a deep breath in and you, you do a massive breath into a, a, a machine, which then tells you your various parameters. When you do a direct bronchial provocation, you actually make a patient breathe in a noxious substance. Okay. So in the olden days, we always, not olden days, it makes me sound very old, <laughs> but one of the classical tests is the metacholine yeah. challenge test where you breathe in a substance called metacholine. And I guess you could do the same with chlorine, mm, that you okay. actually create a chlorine vapor, yeah. the patient breathes it in, you take their lung function before that and your lung function after that. Mm. And in theory, to have a reactive airway or bronchoconstriction, you'd see a fall by 15 to 20% right. in their lung function parameters. Okay. So that's a direct challenge. Mm, okay. Which is not often done. Mm. <laughs> so let's let's talk about. I mean, we, we, everybody talks about when you've got allergies, you medications that you can take, and chronic medications and things that asthma pumps and allergy tablets and that sort of thing. So, to tell us what those things do, for instance. Now we know, for instance, if you take an allergy tablet, that's to do with sort of pollutants that are in the air, but you can't take one if you're getting post-exercise asthma, for instance. Is are there treatments for things like post-exercise? asthma or something like that that you can actually take other than just letting it subside 100 percent, mike so basically uh, uh, in the treatment or management of any allergic diseases or chest diseases the first thing is to make an accurate diagnosis which we've talked about and sometimes if there are stimulating factors such as pollen or cold air we need to try and avoid those triggers as much as possible so that's number one make a diagnosis avoid the exacerbating triggers and we can talk about some ways and means to do that later and then third is the pharmacological treatment so the medical management and that's divided into two streams the one is 
your prevention or your long-term control, which generally requires a daily medication. In some cases, it can be as, as needed. And then you have your reliever category or your emergency treatment. Mm-hmm. So actually, the important thing to get right is the controller treatment, um, which really is usually inhaled um, uh, pumps or sometimes medications. Often they contain inhaled corticosteroids, which really need not make anybody scared because they go to the chest, they stay in the chest um, and they can stabilize your airway. So they work on the inflammatory part, which is actually the main part mm. of a reactive airway. It's not just the muscles tightening, it's the inflammation within the airway that you have to work on on a daily basis. So taking a good asthma pump on a long-term basis is or an, a nasal spray in terms of an allergic rhinitis or an antihistamine if you've got uh, um, hives. So you've got your controller. And then you also need to have your emergency treatment. So, for example, if you're having an asthma attack, you need something that rapidly relaxes the muscles in your airway. And these are a, a whole group of pumps which are, are called um, beta-2 agonists, um, and they open up your airways rapidly. Uh, so you need long-term treatment, short-term treatment, avoidance. And then there's also a whole category of, of non-pharmacological means where you can actually adapt your training, for example, to reduce your allergic responses or your hyperreactive responses. Mm. For example, if you are triggered by the cold, and I say that to a lot of my little patients as well, um, the sort of the rugby asthma scenario, when you start warming up, wear a scarf around mm. your mouth or wear a mask. I mean, masks are actually fantastic for asthmatics <laughs> running in the cold. Yeah, yeah. Um uh, if you are very triggered by pollen and it's the well, height of the just, pollen just, just season. Just explain why the mask or something around your face helps with asthma. Just with warming up the temperature of the mm. air that you're breathing in. Okay. So we find that just for the first few minutes, that helps a lot. So you're not suddenly going from a warm indoor environment to this cold outdoor environment and inhaling massive amounts of frosty air. Mm. That's a huge mm. trigger uh, for a, a, a reactive airway. So, so, so I, lo- I love the details and the technical stuff. And I feel like the missing piece in my head at the moment is what actually happens when these, these either allergens or cold air trigger this reaction? Technically, well, what's happening in the airways? Yeah, sure. So if you just quickly allow me to divert back to how we adapt our training so we can just finish that session, you know, wearing the masks. (laughs) If you're highly allergic to pollen, for example, and it's a high pollen day, actually exercising indoors is Mm. an option, Mm. et cetera, et cetera, avoiding highly polluted areas when you're doing long distance running. So the technical bit. Okay, so the, the, the general gist of an allergic reaction is that your body overreacts to something which should be harmless. Mm. Okay, so say you have an allergic nose and that's not to be belittled even allergic rhinitis hay fever can really impact performance Mm. because it can cause nasty side effects Mm -hmm. so say i'm allergic to pollen so i go outside it's a summer's morning they're high pollen levels i breathe in the pollen now my body is pre-populated with specific ige receptors which trap pollen and 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 react to it So if I breathe in pollen, the pollen particles sit down on my IgE receptors and that triggers my allergy cells, which are called mast cells, Mm -hmm. to release a whole lot of mediators or chemicals. And many of those chemicals are preformed, so they get released quickly, uh, such as histamines or leukotrienes or prostaglandins. Mm -hmm. And they can cause things like mucus overproduction, bronchoconstriction, smooth muscle constriction, runny noses, congestion, blood vessels, 
um, uh, uh, really puff up and you can get a congested nose or a blocked chest and then you also get a whole bunch of mediators which are which are later released so say i'm allergic to pollen i go out in the morning i have a massive sort of oh, sneezing attack and coughing attack and my nose is running my nose is all blocked up it's not going to suddenly go away within half an hour because then the delayed inflammatory mm. response comes in which can affect me for another few hours afterwards mm. so that's the gist of an allergic response a whole lot of mediators are released in res- in response to what you are hyperreactive to. There must be a benefit to that, though. Yeah. The body's doing that for a reason. What is it trying to achieve? Oh, you really like your technical stuff, eh? <laughs> so the benefit is, is absolutely zero. But the initial benefit was that this... IgE-mediated response was actually um, initially a response to parasites. Uh, So when we are dealing with parasites, (coughs) this whole response is advantageous because we're getting rid of the parasite. But an allergy is an apparent immune response, so it's a wrong immune response. Mm. To parasites, it would be correct because we're getting rid of the parasite. But to allergens, it's incorrect. Because actually, we should be tolerating those mm. allergens. They actually aren't harmful in mm. most people. Yeah. So as I said, it's it's a it's a, an incorrect response of the immune system, mm. trying to get rid of that allergen by overproducing mucus, etc. Just like we do to a virus, for example, mm. we feel lousy because our body's trying to get rid of that virus. Mm. But from an evolutionary point of view, etc., there's really no advantage. It's the immune system gone wrong. So, so there's no downside to stopping it from happening. I ask that because, for instance, we talk about muscle damage from exercise and you actually want some degree of inflammation because that's what repairs and that's what then builds up resistance to future damage is there is there any such concept when it comes to allergies directly no indirectly if you're using allergen immunotherapy as a treatment Yes, but that's a whole different uh, topic. So, for example, some people with a severe grass pollen allergy or a severe house dust mite allergy who are really suffering despite Mm. medical treatment, we often uh, use the concept of desensitization or immunotherapy, and that's the only time Mm. when we expose them to small amounts of the allergen in a safe form, so either injectable or a sublingual under the tongue on a regular basis so that the body shifts from (laughs) disliking that allergen into accepting that allergen. So under those circumstances, yes, controlled exposure is good. Mm. But generally, no, allergies really don't have have any benefit to the patient. So you're saying that uh, that some allergens you can can adapt your body to accept them. Does does that apply to, you know, pollutants like pollen, for instance? I mean, can you get used to the pollen if you're seriously allergic to something? Yes, you can. So sometimes allergies just automatically reduce over time. So that can mm. happen. So, you know, sometimes the parents in my practice say, oh, I used to have this as a kid and now I've outgrown it. Sometimes it happens naturally. Mm. Sometimes we have to help it pharmacologically. So if you have a very severe environmental allergy, then we can actually give you that allergen that you're allergic to, as I said, in a safe form. So sublingual under the tongue um, or injectable. And these are, you know, very purified extracts of those allergens in tiny, tiny amounts. So the concept of desensitization, which we also do to bee stings, mm. by the way, I was talking about all my cricket playing yeah. boys, um, is giving the act thing that you're actually allergic to in a minuscule amount and in 
increasing sometimes over time to stimulate your body into producing those chemical responses which are more accepting of that allergen. This mm. concept also come across in food allergies. Now we do things like peanut desensitization. Mm. So oh. that can be done and it is a, 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 an option to really think about in athletes who have a specific allergen that triggers them. Does the reverse happen? You mentioned an allergy gets less severe over time. Do you get cases where at 35 someone says, I've never had this before, and all of a sudden when I visit my parents and their cat sits on my lap, I'm in trouble? 100%. It can happen. Spontaneous development. <laughs> so like most things in life, we usually say a third disappear, a third persist, and a third get worse. <laughs> it's, 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 it's sort of those kind of statistics. Uh, asthma can be of adult onset. Mm. So first of all, you can get adult onset asthma. And secondly, you can get adult onset allergies. Um, I've seen it a lot when people move from one country to the next. So for example, a lot of South Africans, when I was still younger and in training and stuff, we all went to England for a few years to do some uh, medical stuff or to locum or to travel. And a lot of people who didn't have allergies suddenly developed allergic rhinitis to birch pollen because we don't have much of that in South mm. Africa. So depending on your exposure levels and completely new exposures, you can develop allergies over time. Mm. Even food allergies, you can develop uh, often something called oral allergy syndrome, where over time, if you're pollen allergic, your body starts confusing certain parts of certain fruits with pollen, and you start reacting to fruits, mm. such as birch pollen and apple or um, or pear, mm. um, grass pollens and, and melon or tomatoes. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of food and coming back to the control of allergies, I would imagine that diet plays quite an important role in um, either accentuating or suppressing allergic responses. Yeah, I think that's a complex topic, and um, I don't think it's it's you know we can just give a straightforward answer to that. Mm. So first of all, in rare cases, you have food associated exercise induced anaphylaxis. So people only react if they've eaten certain foods, usually wheat, within a few hours mm -hmm. before or after the exercise. So then you have to identify that specific food and remove mm. it from the diet at the time of exercise. Otherwise, all sort of inflammatory conditions, including allergens, tend to get worse if you have a very pro-inflammatory diet. So too much processed food, too much sweet food. You know, with my little kids with eczema, I call it the birthday party effect. Often if they've had a complete pig out on sweets and colorants and preservatives, the next day their eczema breaks out. Mm. And that's just an example of how pro-inflammatory some diets are. People with gout, for example, uh, often get inflamed when they've mm. had too many sweet or naughty things to eat. Um, so in athletes, I'd say you know, an, an anti-inflammatory diet, which generally is a healthy Mediterranean type, rich in antioxidants, mm. is definitely beneficial. Mm. I mean, it's quite, I mean, I know we're sort of bouncing between themes here because it is quite fascinating to understand that you can actually do some intervention to get you used to certain allergen. I mean, is, is that something that's quite, I mean, I've, I've never heard of that before and I've, I've suffered from a fish allergy for most of my life and I've always wondered, is there any way of solving it? And, and so how easy is it to get a treatment like that? I mean, where would you go if you were suffering from a, 
a pollen allergy and you're an athlete and you wanted to kind of get over it, would you just go to your normal GP or what, what would you do? Yeah, so that depends on where you live. Uh, in mm. South Africa, it's really uh, more in the realm of the specialist. Mm. So a few ear, nose and throat specialists, but mostly allergists like myself would arrange that. And there are a few allergists in the country, about 12. They're not too many. Um, but we are, you know, on an everyday basis, we deal with desensitizations, bee patients, pollen allergic patients, and we could arrange everything. It's, it's quite complex because you have to get approval of the South African, you know, pharmaceuticals, and then you have to import it in. And we currently do that from Spain. But if you're living in a country such as Spain, Portugal, the United Kingdom, these desensitization tools to error allergens are readily available and often even done in the GP practice. Um, So much more than here in South Africa, mainly because of ease of access and availability. And they're costly as well. Because for us, they come from overseas. it's, It's a good, you know, few thousand rand a month on a on a monthly basis for many months. So it's not the kind of thing where you do it for a couple of weeks and then you're... No. It's, it's yeah. a long process. 100%. Okay. So generally desensitization, if you want to be optimal for things like grass pollen, house dust mite allergy is a three-year process. Wow. And how often would you do that? Once a month? Or? So if you are taking it sublingually, which is under the tongue, you're doing it at home, you do it every day. Mm-hmm. And if you are getting injections, so having it injectable forms, it's generally, it's generally there's a, a build-up phase. And once you reach a maintenance phase, it's generally about once a month. So what stops people from doing that, obviously, is cost, cost. and just the fact that it's a time, the time taken. Time, cost, for your body availability, to not knowing about it. Yeah. Really? And wow. often one resorts to medical treatment first to see how a patient responds. And if they respond adequately to medical, to simple medical treatment, mm. then they generally don't need it or want it. Because it's not like a vaccine where you go and have a vaccine and it's a once off vaccine and then you're suddenly, you know, you're, you're protected. It's, it's yeah, obviously it's a long process. It's not like a vaccine, it's a long process no. shifting your immune system. So in a vaccine, you create antibodies immediately uh, mm. so that you've got a preformed army of antibodies when you encounter that infection. In allergies, it's a slow, steady buildup um, of um, uh, changing your immune system from hating the allergen to <laughs> accepting the allergen. And that requires a whole lot of chemical changes, your antibody structure changes, etc. your antibody response to that allergen. I notice you, you haven't said anything about the fish that Mike brought up. Is that is Mike, <laughs> yeah. Mike designed so to not fish eat fish? <laughs> a, uh, fish is a curious allergen because you can actually get a fish allergy later in life, which is one of the few food allergies you can develop later yeah. in life, sometimes in childhood. But shellfish, for example, we often have our little uh, kids being fine. And then when they're older in their 20s or 30s, you could do, develop a shellfish allergy. But because fish is relatively easy to avoid, it hasn't really been on the desensitization radar. We have more more uh, candidates for nuts. Nut desensitization mm. is common because nuts nut allergies is it everything <laughs> and it's not commonly outgrown. Yeah. And in some cases, milk and egg allergy and wheat allergy, for example, are normally outgrown over time. So mm. we don't do that. But in some cases, if they're persistent, we, we try and desensitize to milk or egg. Speaking yeah. of nuts, I remember being on a flight once and they, they announced that there was someone on the plane with a nut allergy. So please, no one should even open a packet that contains peanuts. Is, can, it can actually be that severe? Well, there are different degrees of allergies. Yeah. Uh, some people need to consume, say, a teaspoonful of peanut butter before they react. Some people just need to inhale the vapors in the air. I mean, that's and a star. I was, I was amazed. Yeah, I remember sure. thinking, I'm in seat yeah. 14B, someone in seat 46F. Yeah. 
could in yeah. theory have a reaction to my my peanut. That's, that's why. I mean, that's um, that's unbelievable. That's yeah, it's it's possible. So, so is that is that person treatable by some kind of desensitization? Well, I mean, they, they've got to they'd be, a be quite a because, high risk candidate because obviously of yeah, the safety you, element. Yeah. So you take lots into consideration. Huh. I mean, we prefer to do younger kids because their immune systems are more malleable or moldable. Mm. Older patients, we always oh dear because they are more tricky to to treat, mm. um, and you have to take safety into account because the actual desensitization involves exposure to your allergen. Yeah, I mean, so if you can so, have anaphylaxis every day, it's yeah, just not worth yeah, it. Yeah. So we choose our patients wisely. Just just even. A step before treatment in terms of diagnosis, how, how long does it take you typically to find the source? Because from what you said this morning, it sounds like quite a lot of investigative work goes into this bit of trial and error, a lot of interrogation and questioning. How long from start to finish does it take to typically diagnose? Was it easier than it's made I to think, sound so I far? Think, <laughs> I think allergies are very undertaught at medical school. So I've been lucky enough to specialize yeah. in it in the UK, etc. cetera. Um, so, so it becomes a second nature. Um, but generally when we have a new allergy patient, we have an hours consultation, just to give you an example. Mm. We sit down, we take a thorough history, looking at the patterns there, do an examination, and then we embark on allergy tests. And I do a lot of what we call skin prick testing. So, um, you know, we did right there in the rooms. So um, on the forearm. On the forearm, testing to various allergens. Hmm. And that takes 15 minutes, and then you've got your answer. And then, of course, you need to know how to interpret it. Mm. Some things might be cross-reactivity. For example, I can't tell you the number of patients I get to re- referred by ENT surgeons who, because the patients had big tonsils and adenoids um, and they're 12 years of age or whatever, they've done allergy tests and the food allergies have come up to peanuts and soya and wheat. And the patient says, but I've been eating this all my life. Then all I need to say to them is, are you grass pollen allergic? Yes. Okay, it's a cross-reactivity. Mm. It's actually not clinically relevant. So you have to know patterns as a, that's where, why we have to specialize as mm. allergists. But generally, um, once we see the allergy tests, we interpret them, we adjust it uh, to the patient, and then we come up with an allergy plan. And that may include preventative treatment, allergen avoidance, possibly talking about desensitization mm. and regular follow-up. Mm. So let's let's move on to the, the, the treatments and the things like the allergy tablets, antihistamines that people take. I mean, are they... Is that a good solution for athletes? I mean, I think most of the people that are listening to this podcast are probably thinking about it in terms of respiratory um, issues that they might have. I mean, is is that a can you take that all the time for the rest of your life if you struggle with things like pollens and things that affect your your lungs? Yeah, so um, the the bottom line is that there are incredibly safe, effective treatments available for lung or nose associated allergies and many people shudder at the thought of taking an inhaled steroid or steroid based nasal spray but actually to put it in perspective these things are unbelievably safe you'd have to be taking them for months or years to get the equivalent of one dose of oral cortisone in Mm. and essentially they can be taken as long as you need as long as it's in a in a sensible dose which is age appropriate in a sensible form and a sensible combination of medications. So if you need to be on an asthma pump for the rest of your life, that's fine. As long as it's appropriate, an appropriate dose, an appropriate choice that minimizes side effects and maximizes benefit. Um, and and antihistamines? I mean, there's antihistamines. so many on the market these days. Yeah. So what you want to do with antihistamines? Antihistamines come in various generations. The older generation have got their dirty drugs, we call them. They've got side effects. They can make you drowsy. They can make you lousy. 
<laughs> they can dry out your mucous membranes. Um, but the newer generations or the even, even newer generations are incredibly safe medications. So they can be taken long term. The ideal scenario for allergy control is that your long-term controller is so good that you don't need your reliever that much. And in theory, an asthma, your reliever is a quick-acting bronchodilator, and an allergic rhinitis, your reliever is an antihistamine. Mm. So ideally, you get to the stage through allergen reduction and use of appropriate nose sprays that you don't need it every day. But these medications are incredibly safe if you choose the right ones. So if you're taking antihistamine, for instance, every single day, there are lots of ones on the market at the moment, is it can you stick with the same one i've heard different stories about the fact that you can't stay on the same antihistamine because it loses its effect after time you must switch antihistamine pills because they give a slightly different effect i mean how would you use an antihistamine and how would you use it sustainably so first of all i would say make sure you've got the correct diagnosis because it might be that you're getting the diagnosis all wrong and that you're getting a series of common colds for example in kids that's very common that Parents mm. think they've got allergies, but actually they're just getting viruses. Mm. So mm. have yourself tested, uh, confirm the allergy, confirm what you're allergic to. If, for example, you're allergic to house dust mite, then some simple strategies such as mattress cleaning or bed covers or reducing your fluffy toys, hot washing your stuff may be enough to alleviate a lot of your symptoms. Um, but if not, then you go on medications. In, in terms uh, of your question about antihistamines, actually, no, that's a bit of an, an old wife's tale. Antihistamines are effective and can be taken long term and you don't need to chop and change. The reason for a deterioration is normally something ancillary. So either your allergen levels are high, for example, it's pollen season, or you haven't been taking your medication correctly, or you haven't been taking a nasal spray. For example, antihistamines are great for itching and sneezing, but not very good for a blocked nose. Mm. So you need to have the right combination of meds, or you might be sick and have a virus or sinusitis, which is mimicking your allergy symptoms. So Mm. generally, it's other things that are worsening your allergies. Mm. So some of the antihistamines, because this is a sports podcast worth pointing out, they do get you banned because they contain, yeah. for instance, pseudoephedrine or other banned substances. But that's not an antihistamine. That's a decongestant. So okay. a pure antihistamine right. would not be banned. Okay. Because there was a famous case in the Sochi Winter Olympics 2014 of a Swedish ice hockey player who got banned, I remember reading. And that was for pseudoephedrine, yeah. which was prescribed to him for sinusitis, was what they said yeah. it was. So, yeah. so, so obviously, was, any elite athlete has to be yeah, very careful. Yeah. But but your pure medications, like just pure new generation antihistamines and mm. your asthma pumps and your allergic rhinitis sprays mm. are in in um, in a particular dose range, absolutely acceptable. But what you need to be aware of is that things like systemic corticosteroids would get you bad. Yeah, course, and that and happens when you are badly controlled and you need a course of steroids. So even more reason to have your proper day-to-day control that you don't need your mm, emergency steroids. Mm, mm. Pseudoephedrine unfortunately comes in a lot of cold and flu medication. It's not an antihistamine at all, but it's often combined with an antihistamine. And often with old-fashioned right. antihistamines, which dry out your secretions. Yeah. And, of course, your pseudoephedrine makes you feel great because suddenly your nose is unblocked. But four hours later, you return with a hugely blocked nose. Yeah. So do be aware of those. Yeah, yes, sure, sure. I mean, It gives me a bit of a conspiracy theory because you talk about all these treatments that are available net. We still see top, you know, particularly in the cycling side, lots of top athletes take these medications and – is it fair to say that if you're under the right medical advice, you shouldn't have any risk of being caught with a banned substance because there are so many options available to treat things like asthma in athletes? 
Absolutely. Um, in preparing for this talk, I had a really just quick look at the anti-doping with websites, mm. etc., because it's not exactly my field of expertise. And I was very happy to see that normal, you know, asthma uh, preventer pumps in uh, in in moderate doses are absolutely acceptable, which is what you need. Mild to moderate doses for most patients. Antihistamines are acceptable. Things like systemic corticosteroids are not. Things like pseudoephedrine are not. So I think those lists are available, and you can absolutely treat your patients with Without using any banned substances, unless you're trying to cheat. Right. <laughs> well, there we go. That's the key. That's the key, Brett. Can we just, while staying on the topic of exercise, um, there's a difference I gather between exercise-induced bronchoconstriction and asthma. What's the differential diagnostic criteria there between those two things? And maybe you can explain what they are. Well, we've we've covered yes. asthma, but great. So asthma is a hyperreactivity of the airway yeah. in response to various stimuli, and which leads to inflammation and muscle constriction in your in your airways. Mm. Now, you could actually argue that exercise-induced asthma is a subgroup of asthma. Mm -hmm. So these patients are triggered mostly by exercise, whereas in other forms of asthma, you might be triggered by cold air, by okay. laughing, by viruses. In exercise-induced asthma, they're purely triggered by exercise. Okay. It's not like they're different by severity. No, it's you can have a severe attack when right. you're exercising. So depending on how frequently you get attacks, then you would decide on the treatment. Mm. So some people would say, look, if you have one exercise-induced attack per year when you're running your heaviest cross-country race, um, then you can actually just pre-dose yourself before that race. Mm. But if you have regular symptoms, then you want to be on a regular controller inhaler. Mm. Those inhalers... I gather in South Africa, you can walk into a pharmacy and leave with one without a prescription. No, no. Uh, yes and no. Um, so yes the, for a bronchodilator, one, yeah, yeah. which is a problem because some people just use a bronchodilator whenever they need it. And our recent asthma guidelines in 2019 have been turned totally 180 degrees to say that's absolutely wrong. You cannot just use a bronchodilator on its own ever. Um, so the new way to treat asthma is Either you need to be on a controller in the background mm. and then use your bronchodilator when needed, or every time you use a bronchodilator, you need to use a controller at the same time. Mm. Okay. So a problem and a massive cause of poor asthma control and even asthma-related deaths is patients who do not treat their asthma properly, but just take quick acting relievers as needed mm. and you can actually see when you, when we see patients and assess their control we ask how much astavent do you use as a or, or astavent sorry as a brand of salbutamol or a bronchodilator um, that's commonly used in south africa and by by hearing their answer we can hear how their control actually is and mm. it's a real problem if someone's using a canister or two a month they are at risk of life-threatening asthma attacks worse than if they were using nothing um, or is it, is it that they're, they're using it thinking that it's working and actually it's just ineffective? It is working for quick relief. But in yeah. the meantime, the inflammation in your lung is it's, getting worse and mm, worse and worse. So it mm. only attacks the, it only relaxes the muscle. It does nothing to the inflammation. Mm. And we've really worked long and hard on identifying asthma and, and allergic rhinitis, mm. any of these uh, respiratory allergies as predominantly inflammatory conditions. Mm. Let's move on to something uh, slightly different, and that obviously one of your areas of speciality is particularly around lungs. Uh, what what do we know about um, lungs and and people who are active? Do, can you actually make your lungs healthier? And and if your lungs are healthy as an active person, how much more healthy are they compared to somebody who's sedentary? 
I think in general, obviously, we know the many benefits of exercise, physical, emotional, sort of an an, an anti-inflammatory and a mood enhancer. So we can never deny that. Um, But it's it's an interesting fact, actually, Mike, that not all exercise increases your lung capacity. Hmm. So a lot of exercises, we can pretty much predict, like I can look at you and say, this is your height, you're a male, um, this is how old you are, and then blow into a, into, a, into a spirometer or a peak flow machine, and we can predict what you should be blowing. And there are many charts for that. So that actually stays the same for athletes. We can mostly predict on gender, height, and age, mm. what their lung capacity is. Now, there are certain sports which have actually been associated with an increased lung capacity, but not all sports. And these sports are often, um, I believe, the rowers, mm-hmm. the swimmers, and for some reason, basketball players. So, but not necessarily the runners. Um, so someone like Michael Phelps, apparently, <laughs> our lung capacity, well, your, you two, because you males, would be about six liters. That's how much air your lungs, both lungs together, can hold. You don't breathe six liters every time because you only use a, a tidal volume. But apparently Michael Phelps's total lung capacity is about 12 liters, so double that. <laughs> so some swimmers can have incredible lung capacity. Arguably they're selected to swim. They don't develop the lung from swimming. Or is it a probably combination a combination, of both? probably a combination of mm. of both, but certainly some sports, as I said, have been associated mm. with increased lung capacity, but some sports have not. And remember, everybody gets breathless. We always think when we're breathless, we're unfit. The reason why we breathe fast during exercise is because our muscles are requiring more oxygen and and getting rid of more carbon dioxide. That sends a message to our brain and our respiratory center to say, breathe faster so we can move more air. So it's normal to get breathless, even if you're an elite athlete. If you looked at the Commonwealth Games at the end of the 5,000 meters, they're absolutely exhausted, no matter how fit they are, because your breathing rate goes, you breathe in and out, even up to sort of a hundred liters a minute if you are uh, mm. doing high intensity sport but as your muscles get fitter from training they are more efficient with their oxygen carbon dioxide and that's why you don't get as tired when you are um fit because your muscles are fit not necessarily because your lungs are I mean, fit. So your muscles the, in other words the muscles that control your breathing in your chest and your, your muscles chest. all over your body Everybody. your, so your leg muscles they're mm. more efficient they don't need as much oxygen they don't need to get rid of as much carbon dioxide because they're trained yeah and the yeah. carbon dioxide buildup's not as large either yeah so and do, yeah. i mean do do, do fit yeah. lungs are, are fit lungs generally bigger or are they the same and, and just more efficient I'm a bit out of my depth here, but you know, mm-hmm. just just the answer that only certain sports increase your lung capacity would make me think that fit lungs are also just more efficient. But I don't mm. know what you think about that, I've read, Ross. Yeah, I've read that you, your your ability to recruit the alveoli improves with training. So mm. you can explain a little bit more about the mechanistic side yeah. of that and the anatom- anatomical aspects. But remember, the gas exchange happens at the level of these little air sacs called alveoli. Mm. And uh, I've read anyway that um, it's certainly not my area. But that the recruitment of alveoli is improved, the circulation to them is improved, and so the exchange of gas gets better. Mm. But the actual anatomical structure of the lung isn't really affected much by exercise. It's one of the few systems where exercise doesn't change it. It changes how it works, but not Mm. it. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You would have thought you would you would get bigger lungs, but you're right. You can't necessarily not- get bigger lungs. You can get more efficient lungs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think so, so. So again, it's like your Stephen Redgrave. I remember seeing stats on massive lungs, rowers. Mm-hmm. The swimmers. But that's probably genetic. It's a. It'll be a combination of genetic and potentially the training that they do. In mm. some instances, changes that. I would not know why some sports do it and some sports don't. Though. That was a great story about Miguel Indurain, and apparently you had oversized same, lungs, yeah. supposedly. Yeah. But uh, I suppose that that would be. There's a lot they of were born with that. It's the same. I mean, like Phelps's arms, his lungs, his big feet. These yeah. these stories mm. become mm. folklore, and th- they they probably people's attempts to explain complicated things in simple ways, and they don't always capture everything. Yeah. Um, I was going to mention one other thing about the lungs, but it's lost. I've lost my... Oh, the, the respiratory muscles must improve through training. So, for instance, the ability to actually activate the diaphragm and the intercostals, that, that would be improved. Can you, can you target train those in someone who needs to breathe more deeply? Yeah, are they breathing you know, if exercises? You can, if you can <laughs> Once again, this as, a, as an allergist, this is probably yeah. beyond my field of expertise. But I would imagine that uh, I would mm. imagine that one one can, and maybe we can get input from someone else about that. But I would imagine with the correct breathing techniques, especially for swimmers. I mean, you need. Mm good breathing technique, mm. especially if you're sprinting the 50 meters without breathing once. Um, you, so I would imagine that there are some specific exercises and techniques which yeah. help with the with the breathing. I was wondering where the, where the rate limiting step is from the nose to the blood. <laughs> and I remember seeing people wearing those little strips on their noses. Yes. You've seen that. Yes. I, I used to think that there's never been something as useless as that. Yeah. Because that's yeah. not where the limit is. Yeah. But then you see a guy like Nina Schurter, who's you know the, the world's best mountain biker, who wears that, still wears those every single time he races. Yeah, so but he they, wear, they wear power balance bracelets for the magnetic aura it gives them as well. But there's people a do a lot of things There's that a are fantastic <laughs> placebo effect. Don't ever forget yeah, that. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, they, they put their socks on in yeah. a certain order every morning yes, and wear exactly. one red and one black exactly. sock. That doesn't have a exactly. benefit, but it does. It does. Psychology's got a lot to do with it. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. exactly. There's the part of psychology. (laughs) And and, and that is important because if people panic or become anxious, then obviously your breathing will be affected. Mm. Just, I mean, you you mentioned very very briefly there the difference between lung size based on whether you're male or female. Uh, Just to delve into that slightly more, are you saying that men's lungs tend to be bigger than female's lungs Mm. relative to body size? Absolutely. Oh, that. Yeah. Okay. So mm. when so we look at... if there's at, a man and a woman um, next to each other of the yeah. same size, would you generally find the male lungs would be bigger than the female lungs? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so when we do charts for lung functions, either for spirometry or just a simple peak flow, which is a office tool, an office tool, the chart is different for men and women, girls and boys, and also with every age group, you know, within every two years of age or in, 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 in adults, every five years of age, it changes, um, and also height. So I'm fairly short, so my lung capacity, um, a female in my 40s, so my projected lung capacity is only about 400 liters uh, my peak flow liters per minute, whereas yours would probably be around 540, 550 to 600. Uh, so there's a, a big difference um, in baseline uh, expectations. It's not just, I mean, it's not exactly always about how much air you can get in, it's also about the ability to expel it as well, isn't it? Because I remember I've done a peak flow test and they yeah, said it's an that expiration I, wasn't, test. I wasn't bad mm. with the inhaling, but the exhaling wasn't mm. as. Well, yeah. I was slightly, what's the word when you're breathing in too much and you're over and over breathing? 
people used to breathe into a bag. Hyperventilate. You hyperventilate. Yes, yeah. slightly hyperventilate. Yeah. So, yeah. It, I mean, can you measure things like hyperventilation versus in, in, in inhaling? Yeah, you're talking about spirometry now because yeah. that's a more specific uh, breathing test where you breathe in and mm. you blow out. Whereas a simple peak flow, you just blow out and that's a nice office tool. So yeah, uh, the spirometer produces certain patterns in certain pathology. So you can mm. see that uh, the, the loop of an asthmatic is different to the loop of someone with chronic bronchitis or emphysema is different to someone who's got a tracheal problem at the top of the airway. So yes, you can see that. Mm. Hyperventilation, I'm sure there'd be a pattern for that as well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, is it? I mean, I guess could you predict somebody's athletic performance based on a simple spirometer test when they were thirteen years old, for instance? If I they don't, have I don't numbers, think so. No, no, there are too many other factors. Ross will know better very, than me. Their types of muscles, yeah, yeah. their genetics, yeah. their psyche. Mm. There's a whole. I mean, genetics must play a huge role, and mm. muscle fibers and things like that. So, so, so your lung no, function isn't not. necessarily a, a final determinant of athletic performance because no. it's just one of many factors. One of many mm. factors, but you can use it obviously to gauge their if they have asthma, etc. How good their control is, yeah, or how much intervention they need. So you'd say it's necessary but not sufficient. Mm. Like in other words, if you didn't have functioning lungs, <laughs> then you've got a problem. Yes, but as long as you do. There's 500 other things you need. Yeah. 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 Dr. Claudia Gray, thank you very much for your time. It's been quite fascinating talking to you. I'm going to go off and take my antihistamine very shortly. (laughs) Hopefully, I know it's not going to improve my lung function, but maybe make me a little bit more comfortable. So thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.